HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, every now and then, a movie comes along that just captures your attention. It just, it just pleases you on, on so many levels that you really can't quite put your finger on it, whether it's the scenery or the costumes, the cinematography. One of those films, for me, was... Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. I just, I, you know, everything about it was so pleasing to me. And just the way it was shot, Scorsese's direction, the, the pace, the, the repressed, steamy love affair with my two favorite actors, Michelle Pfeiffer and Daniel Day-Lewis. But even there were things that, that people don't often think about that really go into making a movie and making it so full and so, so, visually attractive and that was they sat down to the meal everyone had grand dinners and it was very important about who was invited when and and who didn't get an invitation and how they were seated and what was on the table the table settings in that film the food that was served everything just whether i knew one who else one another person who was watching knew how how historically accurate it was or not you know, it didn't matter because you sort of got the sense that it really was. And in fact, it was. And here to prove it <laughs> is my guest today, the person who worked on the film and did the research and the table settings and the food, Rick Ellis. Rick will tell us a lot more about that. Rick is a food stylist, a writer, and a culinary historian with over 25 years experience as a food stylist. He's done both film and print. You name it, the big the big food advertisers, Nestle, uh, Burger King, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts. Rick has worked on all those shoots and uh, for both print and film. 
And in doing all this work over 25 years, it has led him to acquire quite a few cookbooks. In fact, Rick is well-known for his collection. He has over 5,000 books dating from the 18th century to the present. He's a member of many organizations for which, you know, like the Culinary Historians, the Southern Foodways Alliance. It leads him to give a lot of talks on the topic of dining and table setting. And, you know, table setting is, is, is really come back in fashion. Tablescaping, as we call it now, has come back in fashion. So I am so pleased to welcome today Rick Ellis. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Linda. I, when I was here. talking about the movie, you were you got all excited. You wanted to add another point. Well, I didn't. Um, I don't want to take credit for something I did not do. Oh, and, okay. and that was, I was not responsible for the table settings, okay. the props, as they're called right. in the industry. Okay. There was another person mm-hmm. uh, involved with that. And I'm sure you had conversations. Well, well, I mean, it, both are so important in recreating those types of meals. Um, it as much depended on what she was getting as what I put on it. Mm-hmm. And we did prepare and create all the food and the menu, the, the f- meals that one sees in the film. Now, you know, knowing it, you know so much about, uh, we all know, hearing about making of films that there are stops and takes and restarts and starts and takes and. Uh, did this create a challenge for you in, in preparing the food for that? And how did you go about the research? Fortunately, I think Mr. Scorsese's budget was so tight on that <laughs> film, we didn't have time to do lots of different takes. So um, he was very expedient in shooting. That's good. I mean, and you have a bite, a bite of something in your mouth and you, you know. <laughs> well, they were eating in quite a few of the scenes, so the food did have to be edible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's important. Um, and he was very cognizant of the fact that things be prepared or presented properly i asked at one point uh, it's one of the opening scenes in the film a turkey's being carved at a thanksgiving dinner at newland's mother's house known for horrendous food (laughs) and uh, he i said does the actor know how to carve it's very important and i went oh my no i don't think so all right off to wardrobe you go so i ended up carving the turkey on camera (laughs) oh interesting your hands in gloves and yeah, you yeah. know all you see is from the elbows down. But. Ah, the things we never know. <laughs> well, tell me when you do something like this. Now, this film, um, uh, Edith Wharton's, based on Edith Wharton's book from 1920, or I think it was it was supposed to take place in 19 around 1920. It, uh, written in 1920, takes place in 1870. Yeah, right thereabouts. How do you go about the research for something like this as far as what would be served and how? I was very fortunate in this regard. I had a call asking if I would be interested in working on it. They were talking to other people. And it turns out because of the books I've been collecting over the years, uh, I happen to have the material in my library from the period I needed to do the research. Uh One book in particular. And uh, a lot of... I was able to put together a little package over the weekend, read through the book and present all that. And they realized they weren't going to have to pay two people, one to do research, one to do So ordinarily they would, they would hire an independent they might, researcher. They might. Mm-hmm. And then have you just execute the, uh, the beautiful-looking right. food. Uh-huh. Um, because that was my, my next question. Let's say one doesn't have the library that you own. <laughs> Uh, this is a lot of footwork, a lot of research. Well, now today we've got a lot of computer research we can do. Right at the time that did not didn't exist. exist. Right. So it's so each uh, each shoot, each uh, film, or each you know, if you're doing trying to recreate a, um, an ad for a food and they want a certain period, 
that's that's not a minor job. I mean, you really... Uh, culinary history is involved. Research, that's right. That's right. <laughs> detective I, work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is... Um, many people who think, oh, gee, I can make food look pretty, but they, they're a little short-sighted and, and not realize Well, that's it. one aspect of the business, but not all of it, mm-hmm. certainly. And certainly not in doing historical meals. Yeah. That's a specialty. You yeah, corner the market, hold it. <laughs> I wish it. there were more projects yeah. like that. Right. Well, you know, I, I mentioned that um, table settings have sort of once again seemed to come into vogue and and even gotten the new moniker of tablescaping rather than table setting. You know, we're designing this landscape of a table. Um, and it does say, the dinner table does say a lot about culture and about humanity. Um, I was afraid that for a while perhaps it was a, a lost art with families not really dining together, not sitting down to a, not a formal meal, but a, a meal with a well-set table. Um, tell me, what are, what are some of your thoughts on, on this? On- well, I think we've come back to a resurgence, as you've indicated. Um, people being here at Roberta's is an example. Yes, and well... It, it, very, and, and the Heritage Network, um, both... Uh, very involved with I would, what I would call the most current trends in thinking and food mm-hmm. and respect for ingredients and getting back to the basics and I think that's I think that's galvanized people to a certain extent of you know I don't want another fast food meal or takeout I, you know, I really would rather cook a simple meal at home for friends mm-hmm. and obviously once you do that then you have to set the table that's right that's right <laughs> Well, and of course, uh, I mean, because of those trends, table settings are changing. We have a lot more uh, restaurants that serve small plates or sharing of food. And this is something that, you know, everything else sort of gets thrown out the window. All those classic table settings get thrown out the window because we have new trends coming along. I think at home, though, and that's one of the distinctions historically as well, uh, people entertaining at home tend to do it in a certain fashion and set the table a certain way. Certainly by age, by class. Um, and those those differences are apparent even throughout reading books, you know, back to the 17th century. And But one can look at, and I, I did a lecture for the Cooper Hewitt when they did Feeding Desire, yes, that wonderful yes. exhibit. On... Um, and I used examples from all the current uh, sort of retailers, Pottery Barn, William Sonoma, all these, uh, Dean and DeLuca, you know, aspirational catalogs that have lavish table settings and accoutrement for sale. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely a, a marketing trend back to that. You see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is nothing speaks of, of I don't know. Um, warm comfort than walking in and having a a table nicely set and you know as a whether you're a guest or whether you're having guests in it just it's well it's the it's the focus of the evening and it just makes you feel very good yeah well we were talking earlier about uh, where does one go to find what a what a proper setting is and not that we have to you know be adhere to strictures of of you know what proper is but i think certainly people coming of age want to have a dinner party and I know when I was a, a young woman first having dinner parties I wanted to set a proper table and I would refer to a particular book 
You mentioned Joy of Cooking, I one did. of my favorite, I my first cookbook in college. Right, a Joy and of Cooking. And they still te- they still have a chapter on how or right. a section on how to set its place setting properly. Return to that section. But tell me what in in amidst your collection of books, um, where do you go for for advice or for you know for table well, setting? In doing the research, research. Uh, as I said earlier, it came down to one book basically. There were two. I actually happen to have both with me today. Two of my favorite books. One was the most instrumental. It uh, corresponded with the time that uh, the film was set, the time period that mm-hmm. it was set, 1870s, uh, sort of early Belle Epoque. Right. And uh, it's called Practical Cooking and Dinner Giving, written in 1876 by uh, Mary Henderson. She was the wife of a, the senator from Missouri, John Henderson. He was senator, and they lived in Washington from 1862 to 69. Uh, they moved back to Missouri. Uh, he became wealthy, and then they moved back to Washington in the in 1889. And at that point, she cemented her reputation as being uh, the leading Washington socialite of her time. Mm-hmm. Um, hostess to presidents, senators, cabinet members, foreign dignitaries. So, if anyone knew how to set a table, she well, was and the <laughs> book that she wrote many years earlier in 1870 on her return to Missouri. Uh, is fascinating because it was one of the only books of the time period that gave very clear explanations on the types of service and how to affect your table to go along with that at the time. Everybody else assumes, many books assume, um, or they're written for a very high-end market. Mm -hmm. Um, And hers was, as it said, Practical dinner giving. Now you now you refer to now. I'm looking at the book as as you're turning the pages. It's not a big book. It's a it's a very small. Um, what is it? Several hundred pages. Yeah. Three hundred something. Eight pages. by eight by five. I mean, in size, it's not a big format. But and she has the first fourteen pages are instructions on setting the table and serving the dinner. Now you said different types of service, and so. This gets to be this is a rather complicated topic, which I'll try and distill to a few sentences. Mm -hmm. That people, historians, uh, culinary historians, know at the time from Europe, uh, traditionally, uh, which had developed in the court of Louis the Fourteenth in France, was a service called service à la française, where elaborate tables were set in two to three courses, all the plates down at once, very symmetrical arrangements. Often the food was cold at that point. It was more about visual than having a hot mm-hmm. meal. In 1810, the ambassador to Paris from Russia, um, and I have his name here, I'd never remember it otherwise, but Alexander uh, Kurikin introduced service à la Russe, à la at, Russe. at the Russian embassy. And I, I've never read anything to support this, but it's my theory. The Russians had to come up with a way of how to keep food hot, mm. hotter mm. than those big palaces in St. Petersburg. <laughs> Let right. it, you know, how to serve a meal and get at least it a little more enjoyable. And they came up with the, rather than all the plates going down, you were served individual courses, akin to what we know as proper meal service today. Right. You see it in restaurants, you'll see it at catered meals, you'll see it at a very fancy dinner party where each course is served individually to the diner. Right. And what's interesting is a lot of people consider that French service, even though it's a la Well, Rose, this is but. where it got confusing because there are, the terms switched and two authors, one refers to it service 
on, uh, early French service as service anglaise. <laughs> then there's a hybrid of that. Then when I, ca- I started out in catering, when we served at the table onto a plate, they called that service a la Francaise, which, of course, that's not historically what it was. So the terms are a very uh, mishmash of where they've overlapped and been reused. Mm-hmm. But suffice it to say, there were these two distinct types of service. And Mrs. Henderson was very clever in that she acknowledged early at, in 1870, uh, she says, two distinct and early defined styles known as the English and Russian, having its advantages and disadvantages were the subject of contention. Um, in she said, it's fortunate that a compromise between them has been adapted by the fashionable classes in England and France to cut to constitute a new style. Um, so she goes on. She doesn't give it a name, though, hmm. <laughs> which is frustrating. She yeah. just refers to it as a new type of style. And uh, another book I have, he sort of reverses the trends, uh, the names, and talks about uh, calling it uh, service anglais as well. Um, but that there's also a hybrid that's being adapted by fancy homes. Anyhow. Well, we uh, and we're going to talk more about that other book that you just mentioned after a short break, because that is some book. So stay with us, and we'll be talking to Rick Ellis more about creating historic tables. Se o dinheiro é seu Ei, baby, seu cabelo é legal Moda na gringa é feliz Natal Se equivocou, mas ficou tudo bem Agora disso está na onda zen Ei, baby, você venceu Passe amanhã e pegue o que é seu A maquiagem vai desmanchar Faz o seu medo aparecer Zero a zero, agora eu vou Você deu mole, então eu marco o gol Zero a zero, você venceu Passe amanhã e pegue Welcome back. We are talking with Rick Ellis, a food stylist and culinary historian and quite a book collector. Uh, Rick, tell me, how did you get started in the food styling business? Circuitous route. Hmm. Went to school for architecture, then graphic design here in New York, School of Visual Arts. Went to work for a catering firm. Realized I enjoyed doing food, but couldn't afford to go back to school at that point. I was living here in New York, young man. And a dear friend who is my counterpart in the business, a prop stylist. Her husband was a food photographer, knew my background, and thought I had the perfect training. Hmm. And Excellent. gave me my first introductions, and well, here I am. Well, I know you have some some southern background in you, even I though do. you were born up north. But I, but raised in the south, southerner by default, I say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just uh, somehow, you know, southern and the good ho- the southern hostess, the you know the the lavish table settings and meals, it, it all kind of falls into place. I don't know. <laughs> we were, um, you know, we were talking about different books that that you rely on for. Or, uh, some of your research and and of course table settings. I mean, I think of, this is some this is nothing new. I mean, this goes back thousands of years to the medieval forget medieval period. Talk about the Romans and the Greeks. I mean, the table settings they had, you know, their bread trenchers. That was quite a statement. That was you know that right. was your your charger was your your, your big. But of course, the historical 
uh, sources for that thing, those meals are very few and far between. That's true. That's absolutely right. Um, So tell me, you brought a large book with you, and because I before the show, I asked Rick um, what one of his most cherished books or favorite or most important he feels in his collection. I mean, he had a collection of five thousand books. It's kind of tough to pick just one, but certainly one stands out. Uh, This one does stand out. I'm very. Very feel very fortunate to have it in my collection. Uh, my collection primarily is American cookery books uh, and foodways, but the subcategory that I'm, of course, interested in because of my background is visual presentation mm-hmm. and how uh, tables, dining rooms, meals were put on the table. And, of course, for that kind of uh, uh, source material, you need to go back to Europe primarily. Mm-hmm. There's very little American um, first book cookbook wasn't published here until 1796. Right. So, American, written by by an American. Yes. Anyhow, the book you're referring to is by Urbain Dubois, um, and the title is Artistic Cookery, a Practical System Suited for the Use of Nobility and Gentry and for Public Entertainments. Well, there we have it right there. No, it, you know, forget it. If you're, not no, if you're not part of the nobility or you know, the gentry class, don't even open this book, right? It, <laughs> well, first of all, you wouldn't have been able to afford to buy a book, or would you know how to read? So, Published in 1870, uh-huh. he was a pupil of Karem. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, which is something I just got discovered today. And the chef de cuisine to the king of Prussia. I guess at the time where the book was written, which, if anyone knows their European history, that was probably one of the wealthiest monarchies, right, right. Uh, empires in the late 19th century in Europe. Now, this book is a large format book. Yes. Which is interesting. And you, which, it, what, what, is this an original edition or? At, good question. It, re, it has been rebound. I uh-huh. know that. Um, I, as, there's only one publication date in it, so I'm pretty sure it is uh, first edition and but if you some of the the plates um in this book uh the the images of the uh tall things are things that people you will see when you when you what look are called pièce monte there you go pièce monte uh, thank you or set pieces right. earlier english explanation <laughs> the book has um 80 engraved plates 80. full a, a yeah. full that, page Beautiful car, uh, copper plate engravings, uh, which is the reason I've. And anyone, even with the le- least bit of, uh, I think, fascination with culinary history and the imagery, if you saw some of the pictures, you would recognize them, yes. the engravings. They're, anyone who's done any research, especially too, you come up upon these things and there's, you know, the whole page of uh, molds as you just leap through. Yes. And, and people would recognize these plates, definitely. They're truly fantastical. Mm-hmm. And, um, and recipes along with them. <laughs> what to put inside those beautiful <laughs> how to dishes, How right? to create it. <laughs> it's here. Yeah. But um, again, he also gives quite a bit of description in the beginning of the book on the, types of, the two types of service going on at the time uh-huh. and how the table is set for both in the difference. Uh, which can, that's why my point was it was a huge transition time. Even though it had started earlier in France, of course, England and America, it was just transition. Uh, Isabella Beaton writes about it as yes, well in, uh, right. in her book at that, which is published about the same time. Right. So interesting. So it's. I mean, it's really a. 
It's a pra- not only is it a gorgeous book, but it's a practical book in in many well, ways. I don't know if I'd ever sit down and make any of it. Yeah. It's rather no, I mean, elaborate. For, for at that time, for somebody who was really wanting to know what yes. how to do it. Yes, right. Yes, interesting. Uh, and I think, and you very much see the the influence of his teacher Antoine Carême. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever have the chance to look at some of his books. The early, they were published in the early 1800s. Uh, amazing fold-out plates, engravings mm. showing elaborate table settings, and his creation of pièce monte, which he became known for and right. uh, actually sort of and made famous. Right. Um, you, you, the the uh, influence is very strong. I had the chance to bid. I was in Paris for a book sale, book auction, cookbook auction, and bid on. Uh, the Petitier, uh Pittoresque, published in 1828 in Paris, and got a very good price for it. The gavel went down, and then I was preempted by the French government. Oh, it had to. It was a. It was. They have first right of on any on, on any object sold at auction in the country. Oh my goodness! If they can yeah. match the price, yeah. it's theirs. Well, at least they recognize that this was a, a work of importance. That uh, and it was going to the, the Bibliothèque Nationale. I and we'll never <laughs> see it again, right? <laughs> no, <I'm laughs> it'll be in there. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting that um, you mentioned just going to an auction just now for books. Uh, people who maybe are interested in collecting cookbooks or book, any kind of books, for that matter, but cookbooks being a a really particular type of of book. This, in its own right, deserves some research. How do you go about collecting books? Well, obviously, the Internet's changed a great deal. Uh, there are the online sites where you can look for old books. I still recommend. One of my first things I do when I travel is look up used and rare bookstores in the Yellow Pages and call them all mm-hmm. and see if they have a section of cookbooks. You never know where you're going to find something. That's right. And if you're in a city... It, as odd as it, I mean, I found I found wonderful books in Richmond, I mean, just odd places where you'd never expect it. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, sometimes you know books that might not be available in, say, New York City or you know a larger city. Uh, that's that might true, be there. but you're lucky to get off region, just like in collecting other decorative arts. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. cheaper where it's not popular. Well, well, what with these books. Um, I mean, you've got you. You have to set aside a, a, a definite budget. I, you can go broke trying to collect. You know, you see a, a beautiful first edition and you want it, but you know, you got it. I'm down to a handful. You got to know of when wants. to. <laughs> got to know when to hold off. Too, well, right? I'm down to a handful. Oh, wow, lucky you. That is really something. So all of these aid in your being a super expert in food styling of of many types, whether it's American or or past. What are some of the biggest challenges that you that you face in the world of food styling print or or still well they're different of course the approaches are very different mm-hmm. um keeping food looking beautiful and fresh is our biggest challenge having it edible if it needs to be eaten mm-hmm. and looking good as well um if you're doing research of course finding the source material of what was popular at the time what did it look like? Uh, the, the women's magazines are ex- especially helpful mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. I think one of the first c- 
cooking magazines goes back to the late 1800s, published in Philadelphia. Well, Goodies yeah. was uh, did a lot of food. I don't know if Goodies was was the first or not. But. Uh, yeah, there were a few mm-hmm. um, at the turn of the, even a little earlier than the turn of the century. So, uh, and then of course throughout the 20th century, locating ingredients sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, so much of the rules have changed too. In well, certainly in print media for food. Ad, well, it depends whether you're doing advertising or uh-huh, not. Uh-huh. Advertising clients are very particular. Truth they in advertising. Food. They want right. their food to be their. Food. No more rocks in the soup to raise up exactly. the vegetables, right? Exactly. It was <laughs> so, marbles, but it was marbles. Okay. <laughs> okay, people, you didn't hear that from us, but <laughs> no, they do. But they do have um, and some. That company policies, still makes right? you sign affidavits. Wow. To this day, edible and true. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, that was that was tricky business. Food styling. I mean, it, people. But you know, I, the, people want to see beautiful food. But then when they get it home, of course, and dump it out of the can, and it doesn't look like that. Then of course they are they are upset. However, I think still for you know for magazines for just you know for capturing the eye and capturing the the imagination of the viewer, you want to see beautiful food. I know there was an article that was written. Um, about food styling, you were, um, I think you were the subject of the, in fact, you were the subject of the article, <laughs> Making the Basil Blush, oh, or Putting the, the Times, Blush on the Basil, yeah, ago, New York yes. Times, uh, and that, indeed, you, you, the art of trying to make it look beautiful, and that you're not going to find necessarily in any old cookbook. Right? No, and, of course, there has been a trend to more what I call documentary style of food photography, as pioneered by magazines like Savoir mm-hmm. and even Donahue out of Australia right. and Martha Stewart um, and those have had a big influence on making the visuals more approachable and realistic um, although as you've pointed out they might be in a very elaborate table setting in one of Martha Stewart's books as <laughs> <laughs> evidenced by her new book on entertaining but yeah, uh, yeah well that's and um, there but are they allowed drips and crumbs and things broken and you know, there's not that striving for ultra perfection that right. may have been evidence in photographs say, from Gourmet in the early 50s. That's right. Yeah, the whole tradition of wiping down the edge of the plate, you know, <laughs> which chefs now do right. too. You know, it looks looks neater. It'll be eye appealing. <laughs> well, and there is now a book. Uh, when I'm sure there were, have been others, Tools of the Trade, but uh, good friend Dolores Custer, who I'm sure you know as well. I reviewed it for Gastronomica. Uh, terrific. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and. I must say that you have gained such a reputation that and somebody entering the field of food styling, I mean, can only cheer if they can land an internship uh. with Rick Ellis. <laughs> one of the, well, um, I've been fortunate to have wonderful people in my over the years. Uh-huh. Well, I can't wait to, uh, to see if anything else new comes along from you, but I, I really do appreciate your being here with me today and sharing some of your secrets and learning so much more about that cookbook collection and i think we'll talk about that more on another show well there's a lot to talk about there yes indeed (laughs) thanks so much you're very welcome and thank you for listening i'm linda palaccio your host on a taste of the past thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. 
You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.